the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Join us now for Grace to the Bay as we glorify the Lord Jesus Christ through sound expository teaching by our teacher, Dr. Roger Chen. Grace to the Bay is the radio outreach of Grace Church of the Bay Area located in San Mateo. If you are blessed by Dr. Chen's message and are looking for a church home, you're invited to come worship with them. Now, here is Dr. Chen. This morning, we find ourselves in a two-part series, the second of the series, that helps us understand not only the importance of dealing with sin in the church, but also how we should deal with sin in the church. A couple weeks ago, I illustrated confronting sin or the lack thereof to the common solutions that people find when they suffer with plantar fasciitis. Most solutions, such as special socks or sleeves or insoles in their shoes, may temporarily relieve the pain, but in the long run, they cause more damage because they're keeping the muscle that's causing the pain from developing and fixing itself, much like we do when we coddle the sinner rather than confront. This will actually make the fasciitis worse despite relieving the pain. In the same way, when we encounter a brother or sister in Christ or a professing brother or sister in Christ who is in sin, when we focus only on the feelings of that person and don't address the sin biblically the way God wants, which will almost always involve some measure of pain, then you will make the sin and the sinner worse. And last week, we saw how the incredible sin in the midst of the Corinthian church, a man sleeping with his stepmother, and how Paul commands the Corinthian believers to deal with this man and his sin, as well as how he himself has already dealt with this man in his heart and in his mind. With that backdrop of this particular sin going on in this particular church, we continue in chapter 5 of 1 Corinthians and look at how the way we deal or don't deal with sin or such a situation will affect the entire church, every individual in it. Because, after all, if you let plantar fasciitis fester, it is not just your foot that will be affected. Your whole body will be affected. You cannot walk properly. You cannot get places on time. You cannot sit through a meeting without being distracted by the pain. And so your whole body, your whole schedule, your whole family, and your work, and many other things will be handicapped as well. Just as one member of the body's sin will handicap the whole church. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Our passage for the morning is verses 6 through 8. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 6 through 8. We've been studying verse by verse 
through 1 Corinthians, and we find ourselves in this passage. Let me read for you verses 6 through 8 of 1 Corinthians chapter 5 as we continue Paul's flow of thought in confronting this sin. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump, just as you are in fact unleavened. For Christ, our Passover also has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us celebrate the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. This morning, I want to offer to you our outline, which is five universal benefits of church discipline. Five universal benefits of church discipline, and it's not even the process per se of church discipline, but dealing with sin. Five universal benefits, in other words, five benefits that the whole church will receive in dealing with the sin of another person. And you've got to understand that. It is not just that his sin affects the whole, but bringing him or pushing him to the point of repentance, if not removing him, if there is no repentance, will also benefit the whole. And understand that as we go through these five points, I'm talking about the whole process of church discipline. In this context, it would be what we call step four, putting the man out of church because there has been no repentance and the sin is just so wicked and he's not doing anything about it. The church is not doing anything about it. And so in that context, we're talking about putting the man out of the church. But you have to understand that these five benefits that we're going to look at this morning, we will have, we will benefit from at any point in addressing sin should there be repentance. Well, without further ado, let me give you the first universal benefit of church discipline. And that is it keeps us humbly focused on God's will. It keeps us humbly focused on God's will will. Look at the first part of verse 6 again, the first sentence. He simply says, your boasting is not good. This comes on the heels of Paul pointing out and rebuking the Corinthian sin of pride and arrogance, having already seen this manifested in a multitude of ways throughout the epistle, in the church as a whole, the Corinthian church. Last week, we talked about how this pertains to their response to this man's sin of incest. By way of review, there was an arrogance in their spirituality. And we don't know exactly how that is playing out, but it either caused them to think that this sin was no big deal because of how holy they were, how holy they perceived themselves. Remember, if you go all the way back, this is how the whole letter started. You guys are bragging about which faction within the church. I am of Paul. I am of Apollos. I am of Cephas. I am of Jesus. And so there's this moral, holier-than-thou viewpoint or thinking within all the members of the Corinthian church or most of the members. There could also possibly be an arrogance that stemmed actually from this man's sin. As in their misguided thinking, the Corinthians... It was a shining example of their superior morality. It's okay that this guy's doing this because we are better, we are higher, our standard surpasses both the law of God and the law of the land or the Roman law. So there's an arrogance there. There's the thinking that they are better than even God and God's people. Now they may not say that. 
Right? They say, no, no, I don't think I'm better than Paul. I'm saying I'm under Paul. I am of Paul. But in the heart, we understand how pride exhibits itself, how it manifests itself, how in the heart your thoughts, when, when you're struggling with pride or, or arrogance, your thoughts do not match what you know you should say so that you don't look proud. And we know they are arrogant. We know they are proud. Even though they may couch or, or verbalize their arrogance with spiritual words. Whatever form their arrogance is taking in regards to the sin, it is the boasting related to this particular sin that Paul is now addressing. The problem with boasting, in general, isn't just the act itself, but the thing that you are boasting about. This is sinful in any form of bragging, such as boasting about one's wealth or education or popularity, but it is especially heinous when the object of boasting is another Christian's abhorrent sin. But when we follow God's command to deal with sin and we follow God's plan of how to deal with sin, we have to, by by nature of that, by virtue of that, what I've just said, we have to do it how God says to do it. We could say we are limited in how we are to address sin by God's word. An extreme example is you don't cleanse the church of a sinner by killing him. You don't deal with a sin by vocally judging him or or shaming him or getting angry at him and yelling at him and hitting him because though that may deal with the sin, That's not according to how God has told us to deal with the sin lovingly, graciously, with God's glory and commands in mind. And so we are, if you really want to deal with sin properly, you are limited to God's word, not only in how to deal with the sin, but also in what you are to consider sin to be confronted. Again, not just your extra biblical convictions, as good as they may be for you, we can only call sin what God calls sin. Sin. Watching a rated R movie or drinking alcohol is not sin according to the scriptures. There may be sins involved as you watch that movie, as you struggle with anger or violence or lust. There may be other issues, as we'll see later in the epistle of drinking, if you're causing a weaker brother to stumble, for example. But in itself, those things are not sin. And I'm just bringing those up as examples that you can't confront someone or go through the process of church discipline and say, oh, you watch, you watch rated R movies and so we're, you know, I need to confront you on a sin because all of a sudden you're putting your place in the place of God and saying something is sin that isn't sin. Now, if you see a pattern of a man coming home and using profanity with his kids every time he comes back from the movie theater or getting extra violent, or impatient, and it's clearly attached to that movie, then discernment and wisdom says, look, brother, look, sister, I really think you should stop watching these movies. And I need to confront you on your sin of anger or lust or whatever it is, and part of how you need to repent is stop feeding yourself with these things. You see how that works? But in and of itself, we need to be careful. Smoking is not a sin. Well, we're the, well, you know, we're, we're, we're the body. and you know. No, it's not a sin. It's not a sin. Okay? And so if, if there are other sins related to confront, confront those. But be, we need to be very careful that we stick with God's will. The commitment to church discipline, purity of the church, God's glory in not just your life but everyone's life demands that we follow God's will. 
And when you follow God's will, you will have an acute recognition of the holiness of God, the grossness of sin, and frankly, the ease with which we all commit it. All of this coupled with the beauty of God's plan and the desire for purity in his church brings us to our knees in humility. Following God's will and humility go hand in hand. You can't have one without the other, and when you have one, the other just follows. You say, well, I've been reading the Bible, I've been doing all my disciplines, and I really, I, I don't really get what you're saying. I want to be humble. I want to have this awe of God, but it's just not happening. Well, you're reading God's Word, but you're not really thinking about it. You're not meditating on it. Maybe you're not understanding it, and that's okay. Dig deeper. Ask questions. Get a commentary. Get a study Bible. Listen more. And you, you know, for, for those of you here, you're all nodding your heads because you get it. How can you, you know, think about your, if you're into biographies or autobiographies, right? Or, or even your modern day favorite uh, uh, Christian missionary or football player or, or, or even just a, a non-Christian leader. And then you read more about him and you're just like, man, this guy is so much cooler than I thought. I didn't know that. Wow. And you're just blown away. The more you learn about these people, you either just have more respect for them and you're going to be even more nervous next time they walk in the door, even though you interact with them every day. Oh, yeah, yeah, I just found out that you're actually a world-renowned writer. I didn't, I didn't know that. Wow, you know? Or you'll learn more about them and be like, wow, I want nothing to do with this person. But that second one's not going to happen when you read the Bible, is it? Because there's nothing bad about God. And so the more you read about the Bible or read the Bible and the more you read about God and truly understand and truly meditate on it and truly understand that this is real, he is real and he is in your life, you are just blown away. You are just blown away. Uh, this is why I tell people on a side note, there's nothing wrong with reading through the Bible in a year. I highly recommend it. But there's some people who just can't. Because they read two verses and they just have to stop and be like, wow. Wow. And that's okay. That's very good. Now don't use that as an excuse just to read two verses. Okay. You, you hear me. Okay. And that's what it is. And this keeps us humbly focused on God's will. When we do what he wants, we got to look to the scriptures and see how does he want us to do it right? Why does he, why, why? Why would, but love and grace, let's keep him here. Let's, let's, let's hug him and love him till he repents. And then you read about his holiness. You read about his bride. You read about that great day and we'll, we will be presented to God the Father unblemished. Wow. It keeps us humbly focused on God's will. But as is evidenced here, when you don't do any of that, the end result is the opposite. In other words, when you don't follow God's will, you won't recognize these truths about him and you will become arrogant. Because if you don't so humbly submit to God, you got to follow someone. And no matter what you say about your job or your boss or your parents or your political affiliation or whoever, if you're not following God, you're following yourself. 
That's arrogance. That's pride. When you don't follow God's will, you won't recognize these truths about him and you will become arrogant. So a personal benefit of practicing church discipline for you as an individual and for all of us as a church, it keeps you humbly focused on God's will. On a very practical level, you probably find it difficult to rebuke properly. You probably find it hard to address someone's sin. That's, that's a hard thing to do. I get it. Or maybe you're personally offended and so you find it hard to do it with grace and patience and love rather than condemnation and anger. But then again, in striving to do things with the right heart and the proper compassion, you'll have no choice but to turn to God's word and to humbly turn to God and his instruction manual. So again, even in the very real difficulty of church discipline, understand that it keeps you humbly focused on God's will. Well, let me give you a second universal benefit of church discipline. And that is it protects the church from the influence of sin. It protects the church from the influence of sin. And we've seen this, right? We've talked about we do this because of the, uh, or for the purity of the church. But here he uses a great illustration of influence. Look at the second part of verse 6. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? Now Paul's getting to his main point and warning uh, in this passage. We saw last week that the ultimate goal is the sinner's repentance or salvation. As it relates to the church body, however, there is a primary goal for those doing the disciplining, and it is purity. It is the purity, our purity as a church. And here Paul uses imagery that is familiar to us from the Old Testament as well as uh, from Jesus himself. Let me explain a little bit of, of what this illustration is. Leaven has often been compared to yeast, although they are uh, quite a bit different. I guess uh, for a baker, they, they kind of do the same thing, but they're very different in composition. Now, understand that bread was a staple of the Jewish diet. Uh, trying to think of a similarity here, uh, but I feel like, uh, especially in California, we're all like, you know, avoid the carbs. So no one really eats bread with every meal. Uh, I don't know of many Asians that even eat rice with every meal anymore tortillas with every meal, whatever form it is. But you understand that traditionally, every culture has some sort of uh, 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 carbohydrate (laughs) that they eat with every meal, right? And for some of the poor countries, that's all they eat. That is the bulk of their meal. That is their meal. And so it was with the Old Testament Jew. So they always had a loaf of bread baked every, uh, every week, more if the family was bigger, more for festivals, things like that. But you get, they always had bread on hand. The leaven was an ingredient in the bread that consisted of keeping a little bit of last week's dough for next week. And so let's say it's Sunday, right? And I'm kneading my dough, I'm making my dough, and so I I would pull off a little bit for next week, for next Sunday's loaf of bread. Well, what happens over those next seven days that dough ferments. It becomes leaven. And after fermentation, I would add it to this week's dough, which in turn permeated the whole lump of dough, causing it to rise and giving it a lightness. Think sourdough bread, right? This process would be repeated every week for the whole year. There's never time they would be without bread. 
Each batch or lump of dough would have a little taken out to ferment for the next week. Now, you can imagine, especially thousands of years ago, week one, January 7th, I take a little bit of dough, put it in January 14th, it permeates that dough, and so week after week, by December, there's still a little bit, right, because you've kneaded it in, of January 7th still. And especially 2,000 years ago, when we didn't have Lysol wipes and bleach, there'd be a little dirt would get in there. Maybe a piece of wood, maybe a little ash from the fireplace or something like that. And so week after week, there'd be that potential for infection, dirt, risks to that family's health. And even though you're only keeping a little bit, a small amount, a little sin, you have a small amount of dirt carried over from loaf to loaf with more impurities potentially being added every week. Well, God's pretty smart, wouldn't you say? And so he instituted something you may be familiar with called the Feast of Unleavened Bread a seven-day festival ordained in the Old Testament in which the Jews weren't allowed to eat anything leavened for seven days. And at the end of that seven days, they would start with a completely fresh new batch of dough without any leaven and thus no impurities from any of the 52 weeks before that. And then that would last for 12 months of baking until the next Feast of Unleavened Bread. It was a hard Reset. They were wiping clean the hard drive. Brand new, fresh dough. And we'll talk more about that festival later. But the leaven works because it eventually permeates through all of the dough. You get that, right? That's why, you you know, you ever baked, even now, you know, I'll, I'll bake once in a while and I still wonder, like, how come I don't have scrambled eggs in just one section of the brownies? Because you mix it in and sure enough, it does permeate all of it. And that's what the leaven does. But as the leaven permeates the whole lump of dough week after week, so does any filth or contamination in that leaven. And in that, you see why the New Testament picks up this illustration to speak of influence permeating the whole, both positively, such as the kingdom of heaven in Matthew 13, but also negatively, for example, bad theology in Galatians 5.9, and one person's sin in the church here. The idea is simply this. A little influences the whole. A little influencing the greater whole. In fact, Paul uses grammar in the Greek to emphasize the word little. It just takes a little. It just takes a little. Young kids, you know you do the same kind of influence, right? All it takes is that. Take off your shoes. Wash every finger. All it takes is a little bit to contaminate everything. And that emphasis on little is Paul's emphasis in saying that's all it takes to ruin everything. The sin of the Corinthians, though limited to specific individuals, And for the incest, one individual will eventually contaminate the whole church. And indeed, we see this happening there. What's the solution? Admonishment, church discipline. 
You protect the purity of the church by removing the sin, the leaven that will eventually spread throughout the whole church, the whole lump of dough. Now, we may not be so familiar with the leaven or the the ingredient of leaven, but the same principle is found in the physical truth and the proverbial nature of one bad apple spoils the whole bunch. Right? You've used that before, and you've seen that. Because if you, like my family, place fresh fruit in a bowl on your counter during the warm summer months, you know that the heat can speed up rot and delay in the fruit. And all it takes is for one piece of fruit, one apple, one peach, one whatever, and not even the whole apple, just one little side, right? To get a little brown. And if it's touching something else, Pretty soon that mold and that rot is going to spread through that whole bowl of fruit, even to the pieces of fruit that are unripe. The bacteria will spread quickly unless you catch it in time and remove it. That's all you have to do. You don't need to rewash. You don't need to bleach the bowl. You don't need to do anything. You don't need to change bowls. You just got to remove the bad apple. And it can no longer spoil the whole bowl. That's what church discipline is. Deal with the sin. If necessary, by removing the sinner to keep the other fruit, the subsequent lumps of dough, from spoiling. This has been Grace to the Bay with Dr. Roger Chen. For the next part in this series, join us next week at this same time. Grace to the Bay is the radio ministry of Grace Church of the Bay Area, practicing and proclaiming the purity of biblical truth. You are invited to join them for worship services in San Mateo, Sundays at 11 a.m. Visit gracebayarea.org for service times, directions, live streamed services, listen to archived sermons, or to make a tax-deductible donation to help keep Grace to the Bay on the air so that we can continue to share Pastor Roger's teaching with you each week. Again, that's gracebayarea.org. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.